0: Welcome to Design Is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere, and so are we. This episode is part of our live series, so our members get a chance to enjoy a live show and ask their questions of the guests. So always visit designmuseumeverywhere.org to see more details about our live shows and become part of the conversation. Today, we're talking about designing climate-positive cities and how we can work towards a future where cities and the environment are in harmony. Joining me as guest co-host is Junelle Simunich, a senior strategic foresight analyst and manager at Arup, one of the world's leading independent firms of designers, engineers, architects, planners, consultants, and technical specialists working across every aspect of today's built environment. Our special guest is Dr. Chris Lubkeman, an engineer, architect, professor, entrepreneur, and speaker. Was currently the Leader of Strategic Foresight in the Office of the President at ETH Zurich. We're going to be talking about planetary boundary cities. That might raise a few questions at the end. We will have a live call-in show, and you can ask questions of Janelle and Chris. Before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum. Check out our We Design Exhibition conversation cards. These incredibly well-designed cards bring our We Design exhibition to your home, right to you. We Design is an exhibition that we put together that brings together creatives from different backgrounds to examine and celebrate the range of career paths and applications and their impact in design. The deck includes stories from creatives in a variety of design industries, and it includes statistics and topics of discussion around diversity and equity in design. The deck can be used alone or with friends. Hey, you can even use it over Zoom, why not? And it's available to order now on designmuseumeverywhere.org. And with that, onto this week's topic. What is a planetary boundary city? What does it look like? Is it even possible for cities to contribute to planetary health? To help us learn more, I'm joined by Janelle Simunich. Janelle is a foresight strategist and manager in ARIP's Global Foresight Team. She's also a member of the Design Museum Council. There, she focuses on climate-ready and resilient cities, examining the design opportunities for artificial intelligence and machine learning, and investigating the impacts facing our future workplaces and disruptors shaping the built environment. With a formal background in urban planning and architecture, Janelle is driven to create unique experiences through physical design that impacts people and builds a better future world. She was the project lead for Arup's 2050 Scenarios Report, which examines four plausible futures of societal conditions and planetary health. Janelle's designs deliver projects that amplify positive change. Janelle, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me, Sam.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. You have a background in urban planning and architecture and your role at Arab deals with the future of the built environment and society at large. So what do you think about the role of cities now that you've done this work that differs from maybe like earlier in your career? Have they changed? Have it stayed the same? Like, how are you thinking about all this?
1: I don't know if the role of the built environment changed, but my perspective on it definitely has. So for the last few years, we've been looking into, as you mentioned, planetary boundary cities. And what that is, is we started investigating the planetary boundaries. And so that is a scientific framework that was created by Earth scientists outlining nine different boundaries that essentially together help the Earth survive and thrive and help us better understand what a systems approach looks like. And so we found this a few years ago and the question we had to ourselves was, can we use this framework to help us rethink how we design and build cities in order to help deliver more positive planetary outcomes? So essentially the work we've been doing the last few years is aimed at that question. Another way to consider it is the answer must be yes. The question isn't, can we do it? Like we must do it if we want humanity to continue thriving because we have one planet, we have limited resources. And as of right now, we don't know anywhere else that humans can live. So until we figure out how to inhabit other planets, we really need to focus on how do we improve the one that we have if we want our species to continue surviving and thriving.
0: Yeah. Sometimes I think we are in like a science fiction movie where like, things are about to get bad. And it's like, how do you communicate that? Because it is a slow burn, right? You know, in the movies, it all happens at once, although maybe we'll get there. So I want to hear about the the boundaries. But can you talk about if we don't make changes, think differently about design, like where are we headed in terms of our cities, our planet?
1: The way that I think about it is the Earth doesn't care if humans are here or not. We're not the first species to inhabit this planet. We won't be the last species to inhabit this planet. And so Earth will be fine either way. It figures itself out. The question is around how long do we want to be here and how long do we want to continue to have a place that's habitable for us and our children and the next generation, etc.? And so part of the reason we also focus on cities is they are the biggest man-made creation. And as a system, a city is the biggest consumer of resources and producer of waste, at which point it creates the most degradation on the planet. We decided to tackle a small problem
0: here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, start, start small. Start small. <laughs> and try
1: to figure out, can we rethink how we do this thing? Because if we can figure out how to unlock cities, as in, you know, the whole system, not cities, not one entity. It's a system of systems, which makes it increasingly complex. So there's transportation and buildings and food systems and all of the other things. And so if we can start to figure out how to unlock this, then you know, the potential for change is infinite.
0: Let's talk about these nine boundaries. Can you share at least some of them to kind of help us wrap our minds around <laughs> the canvas that we're working within and the framework of this planet?
1: Also for the listeners, if you Google or look up planetary boundaries, what you'll see is a circle diagram and it looks like a pie. It has nine different pie slices and they're aspects like biosphere integrity. Biosphere integrity is really around biodiversity, so genetic diversity and functional diversity. So both quantity and kind of number of diverse items of both plants and animals. Climate change is one, which most of us understand. Freshwater use, land system change. So how do we use the land that we have? Is it regenerative? Then there's also one called novel entities, which I think is one of the more interesting ones. So when you put all nine of them together, the scientists think of them as a system and there's two pieces. They're all color-coded and the color-coding essentially is what the current metrics are how close is this particular boundary to its tipping point and can it be improved or not the last i heard they believe that you know we can still improve all of them because they're not all surpassed but it's sort of
0: we're not at the breaking point
1: yeah not quite yet but the communal belief seems to be around the year 2030, 2040 right now. We have these next 10 years or so to really change things. And if we don't, unknown what will happen. And novel entities, what you've mentioned earlier. I think that one's interesting because if you look at all nine, the other eight are fairly clear what they mean on Earth. There's land and water and ocean and atmosphere. Novel entities, it's kind of like all of the man-made things. There's a scientific definition, but that's how I interpret it is like plastics and runoff of chemicals and things like that. And so that's sort of the catch-all for all of those topics.
0: As a foresight analyst, how do you tackle these things? Is it research? Is it, I guess, what do you do? So
1: my background, like you mentioned, is architecture and planning. So I tend to approach lots of problems from that angle of can we design our way out, trying to assess and analyze what's happening today so that we can modify or change it. I don't think that's true. And and I also tend to take a built environment lens, but I typically try to think of ways the built environment can change things, whether we can redesign buildings or rethink transport systems, et cetera. Now I say that because if you talk to someone else in foresight, they may approach this in a completely different way.
0: Is it like being like a futurist, like that's one word that like I think about. Is it like taking some of these like data points that are kind of happening now and projecting and thinking about what could happen?
1: Often someone comes to us with a question. Sometimes we create the questions ourselves. So for instance, the planetary boundaries we came up with, it was a question formed by our team, but other times we'll have a client come to us and say, what's the future of transport in this region? Or what's the future of biodiverse in my city? And so if it's driven that way, they come to us with a question and then the approaches often do some form of desk research and surveying, whether it's interviews or workshops or reading reports or et cetera, some sort of content gathering. When you start digging deep into these different topics, you'll find trends. I've yet to have a project where trends don't just somehow emerge in the process. So you start to find the trends and that starts to focus in on where you head. And then also in terms of when we start looking at the future itself, the future is all driven based on the past as in humans history repeats itself depending how far out you look forward you need to look at least that far back so if we're going to 2050 we should go backwards 30 years from whatever date you're at you start to see again how how much did things change and that can show you a bit of the probability of how much things will change going forward but also there's a number of people research institutes etc around the world that do projections and forecasting and that also plays a heavy role as you start to look and find all of these different data points And so if you have, let's say, 20 different forecasts from different topics, if you take all of that, you start to put it together and it can help paint the picture of what this future looks like.
0: You're basically a fortune teller. Yes,
1: that's what people call me. I've been waiting for the day that a crystal ball appears on my desk.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you need a crystal ball for sure. I mean, you can make that happen. I know one of the projects you've led and worked on at Arup is the 2050 scenarios report. And you wrote a great Article for Design Museum Magazine about that. Can you walk us through like where that project came from and some of the key findings around it?
1: So 2050 was actually a project initiated by Chris. The team had done some scenarios for the future about 10 years prior, and so one of the questions that we had, I guess, two two different approaches. One was how accurate were those, and the second was what would the future look like in 2050, and can we not recreate the same project, but like have a similar approach? but think at a different timescale. So I guess it was born of our team. There aren't a lot of scenarios for the built environment. Part of it too was us trying to give our colleagues and other people in the industries a set of scenarios to look for to say like, hey, these are the different versions of the way that the future might go to help with as a like, decision-making tool for how you design, plan, build, talk to your clients, et cetera in foresight there's a number of different like approaches and tools that we use and for this particular one we went with a four square grid approach sometimes it's called the two by two then you pick the two axes and then those start to drive the content that's inside so the two axes we had one was societal condition and one was planetary health And so then we started mapping out what do these four worlds look like? And you end up with one that's double positive, which has positive planetary and societal conditions in the future. Double negative, which is everything gets worse. And you have the two in the middle. It was fascinating doing these because three of them was really easy to find data on. So the scenarios themselves were all data-driven. We were doing, you know, we did research, we found projections, we found evidence to prove that this could potentially happen. And the three were the two mixed conditions and the negative. The one we could not find, we found some but not heavy evidence and data for was the positive condition. And I know as a project team, that made us a little bit sad.
0: One of our past guests mentioned, going back to movies, he basically challenged me to be like, can you name a movie where there was like a positive view of the future? And the only thing I could come up with was Black Panther as like this, like, you know, Afrofuturist look at what the world could be. My ask to you is: Can you paint the picture for us of what that double positive actually looked like? There's so much negative stuff we could talk about. What did the scenario look like when it was double positive?
1: So it was a world where everybody had a decent income, so people could afford to live in you know reasonable housing. There's green around the city. It's a lot more environmentally friendly. We no longer have polluting vehicles. We have active modes of transport. We have healthy food systems. Food comes from regenerative farms right outside of the city. You have flora and fauna back in the city. So there's more birds and there's more bird songs. And noise has diminished because we can do things like put up green facades and other, you know, natural remedies to help minimize noise pollution. The air is clean because we no longer have polluting vehicles.
0: I want your foresight, futurist. Can we get there? That's my question. Are you hopeful? Are you optimistic? Can we get to the double positive?
1: I think we have to. But in the meantime, that is what I'm spending my life trying to figure out right now. Because I think we have to be able to figure out a way to do it. And right now we have all the evidence that says we can. So we know all the solutions. It's just a matter of taking all of the solutions we know of and putting them all together rather than delivering them in silos or in isolated pockets.
0: Thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing this. I really appreciate your perspective on all this. Listeners, to learn more about Janelle's work, visit foresight.airup.com. We'll post a link to that and other resources we mentioned in our show notes. And everyone stay with us. Janelle and I will bring in Dr. Chris Lubkeman after a quick break. Design Night Live is back. Join us on Saturday, September 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern for a night filled with all things design. Design Night Live is a Saturday night filled with prizes, familiar faces, networking, a silent auction, and more. We have the amazing Design Matters host, Debbie Millman, as our keynote speaker. During this interactive virtual event, attendees from all over will come together to celebrate design and the effect that storytelling has on all of us. We'll be sharing the vision and impact of Design Museum Everywhere and hear from designers from around the world about how storytelling can be so transformative. Join Design Museum Everywhere for a night filled with inspiring company and incredible prizes. Get your tickets today. Visit designnightlive.org. See you there. We're back. Janelle and I are joined by Dr. Chris Lubkeman. Chris is currently the leader of strategic foresight in the office of the president at ETH Zurich. Previously, he worked as an Arab fellow and director of global foresight research and innovation at Arab. Chris has taught at institutions all over the world, ETH Zurich, University of Oregon, Chinese University of Hong Kong and MIT. In 2020, Chris co-founded Your2040, which aims to be a yearly gathering with different focuses dedicated to co-creating the world they want to live in someday. Throughout his career as an entrepreneur, engineer, architect, author, and professor, Chris has spoken at TED, WEF, and keynoted dozens of conferences around the world, including design museum conferences. Chris's designs combine an attitude of pragmatic optimism with curiosity and a deep sense of planetary responsibility. Chris... Welcome to the show.
2: Sam, thank you. It's really great to be here and great to see you again.
0: Let's kick it off. I mentioned you're the leader of Strategic Foresight uh, in this hub, the Office of the President at ETH Zurich. This is a sort of recently established hub. A team generates a broad range of ideas for stakeholders around the future. I'm curious, like what motivates you and drives you to continuing, you've done this throughout your career, like, continuing to think about and communicate the future.
2: For me, the future is inevitable. And we become the authors of that future if we so choose. And I truly believe that. If you believe in democracy, you have to believe that your voice counts. Every voice counts. And so, therefore, every choice counts. And therefore, what are the set of choices we should be making as we move into the potential future? So, I joined ETH because this is where I came almost 30 years ago to study and to do my PhD. And it changed my worldview. It changed my life for the better. And after being a faculty member, as you mentioned, different parts of the world and joining Arup for 20 years, I decided it was time to come back to the ETH and try to help it be the best version of itself to be prepared for the really profound changes which are coming to higher education.
0: We got a bit of a preview from Janelle about focusing on what foresight is. There's so many unknowns, there's so many variables, like what are the big challenges in doing this kind of work and, and how do you tackle them?
2: That's a really great question. You know, Janelle was waiting for the crystal ball to land on her desk. And I think, you know, it's, we, don't have, we don't have one like that. But I think the biggest challenge is your own preconceived notions of what could be. You know, all of us are prejudiced. If we weren't prejudiced... We couldn't make decisions. That means we have opinions about what we want, what we don't like, et cetera. So, prejudice for me can be a completely negative and terrible, as we see in many ways, but it is a very human characteristic. So, the biggest challenge for us is getting over ourselves and being open to talk about the future and futures which can make us also uncomfortable. And I think that's really, that's very hard because very often we like to not talk about what could be very uncomfortable for us. We like to imagine the rose-colored glasses. And as Janelle said, you know, we had a very difficult time trying to imagine how we were going to end up in this double positive quadrant. Imagine how it could slip into any of the other three. And you could find instances in parts of the world where we were already slipping in those directions. And that's to me failure of our own imagination. But on the other hand, when you start doing it, when you start opening your eyes and opening your heart, how could we do this? How could we? I mean, and not give up, right? And this is the key thing. As Janelle said, we were kind of bummed and for weeks, frankly. We're weeks. And say so it's just not good enough. Cause the future has to be that double positive for humanity. It has to be. So how can we get there? And this is where the planetary boundary city work really became so critical in saying, can we look around the world and see those instances of systems or interventions or actions which we know can add up to make the difference which we need?
0: Yeah. Can you share some of those actually? Like some of the signals that you're seeing out there that actually, like Janelle and and you just said that if we could bring them together, some examples would be great.
2: One of the things that we started to see is a recognition that data on the impact of materials that we use beyond simply we bought it there and this sort of cost is really important. Like, where does it come from? Is it virgin material? How much water is it using? Where does the water come from? In the world of climate emissions, this is scope one, two, and three for the emissions. But actually looking beyond just emissions is saying water impact. What else is it doing? Is it destroying natural biosystems? Is it replaceable? Is it irreplaceable? So it's actually almost like that recognition that we can begin to catalog. The second one, I'll say, is just this idea of, hey, you know, local is not a bad thing. (laughs) That it doesn't have to come from afar to be great. where the idea doesn't have to come from afar. The product doesn't have to come from afar. And that we're starting to see as well. And I think the pandemic, for many of us around the world who lived at the top of the pyramid, all of a sudden discovered sources for things which we needed either to eat or to exist that were closer, right? It's like, oh, I didn't even know that existed. I didn't know that store existed or that farm existed. It's only 20 miles away. How can it be there? And I was like, oh, it's like a great awakening. Now, the question becomes for me, what is going to be sticky, right? What's going to stay in this preset and what's gonna slide back? Especially when we're moving towards the planetary boundary cities, how can we really ensure the stickiness of some of these things?
1: I think there's uh, probably two that stick in my head right now. And one is around land use. So, you know, how we use the land and what we use it for, right, like not all farming is good. One of the default modes is like, ooh, farming, farm equals good. I'm oversimplifying it, but you know, what you actually use the land for is important and how. So, you know, regenerative farming, probably because I'm in these <laughs> I look into this a lot, but it seems to be a trend that's continuing to grow in part because there has been evidence that if you do go down the regenerative farming path, it can produce more goods and food than industrial farming.
2: That's a really good point, Janelle, this idea of just because we have this romantic version of something, that doesn't necessarily mean that that something is the right solution, right? As you've just mentioned, this the farming part, and there are many methods coming up. And Sam, you asked about some of the methods about you for putting carbon back into the soil, which is part of the regenerative farming, which Janelle's been working on and trying to understand about by, by capturing carbon in the soil, you, you're helping the soil regain vitality. The microbiome can be stronger. And so it's just like a triple win.
0: As you describe these things, any rational, reasonable person is like, yes, let's let's put greed and industry aside. In all this work that you've done, is an element of this work that you've done, like trying to figure out how to change people's minds and behaviors and educate? Because that seems like that has to happen. Otherwise, it's, as you mentioned, humans have this mentality of like, it's going to work out. I'm not thinking about the microbes because I can't see them not thinking about the air because it's invisible. How, how are you thinking about changing people's minds?
2: So Janelle mentioned the reason that we were doing the 2050 scenarios was to help our colleagues understand what the future could look like as well as our industry. We create the places and spaces that allow humans to not just survive, but to thrive. This is what our industry does. And this is the opportunity and the obligation. And so we're trying to help paint pictures of what that world or those worlds could look like, depending on the decisions which we made as designers, as consumers, as individuals. And so that was absolutely and intentionally an educational program in incorporating the SDGs in a meaningful, measurable, manageable way. And so that was very, very important. And I think education, 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 education. The thing I think, Sam, that we've we've got to remember is we need to be able to remember to communicate in ways which different groups need to hear it, not how we want to tell it. And as designers, this is something we're not quite so good at all the time. We like to use a certain language. We like to tell it because we know better. Thank you very much. We're designers. And Okay, good. Now, there are many amazing designers who are experts, and that's not going to be good enough if we're trying to help the change happen. We have to have an attitude and service of the citizen. And how do we help our citizens all over the world learn? And how can we learn from them how they want and need to learn? How do they need to hear these things? And as Janelle mentioned before, some of the planetary boundaries, there's some pretty kind of squirrely, difficult things to get your head around. Even if you've got like a PhD in atmospheric science, you're kind of going, hmm, uh, how do we break that down into a consumable gummy bear? And we shouldn't stick our noses up and say, oh, I don't know, they've got to learn about it. It's like, no, gummy bears are cool. No, I keep
0: thinking about um, like Matt Damon had this sort of streak of movies, right? Where he was trying to communicate the dangers of our planet in gummy bear form. You know, it's like movies like Elysium and I think Promised Land and like those media elements, all leading back to even Janelle, that image that's behind you and the image that you all put in the 2050 report images that paint that picture so that people can start to visualize. It just seems so critical that we
2: continuously visualize this. But I think it's also very important, Sam, is we help by educating around or communicating around things like the tipping points, which we're really close to. Like the Amazon forest, if we lose between 2 and 3% more of the Amazon forest, we're quite literally cooked. This is, for me, deeply troubling, scary, because what I didn't realize is the Amazon is also a source of water. The forest is a massive source of water up into the atmosphere. And I just didn't think about that. I always thought about it. it's just like it rained. and But it, the, water, the air goes up. The water goes up into the atmosphere. When that dries up, Ooh, problems. And we'll feel it in Florida, right? We'll feel it in Munich. We'll feel it in Moscow and Singapore because it's not just Brazil. We have to start being honest. Remember you asked before about a foresight. You have to be honest about what can happen and be ready to face that.
1: People work towards the future they believe is possible. And if you can visualize that, and that's where I think foresight is really powerful. That if you can paint a picture, whether it's in words or an actual image or whatever format you design in, people will work towards what they believe is possible, which is back to 2050, why we needed this one. Because if you only give dystopian futures, that's what will happen because that's all you believe in. And so I think that's a really powerful angle that we have the ability to influence.
2: I think that's a really good point and a very important point to storytelling, to tell a story about the future you wish to have, you want to believe in, it's worth working towards.
1: And it happens at a personal level or at a global level, right? If you work on yourself personally, and you start going to therapy and whatnot, at some point, you start thinking, what is my my future? What do I want that to look like? The same is true if you look at humanity on a massive scale, whether it's a city or the world.
0: I like that metaphor. Humanity needs
2: therapy. We're all gonna have like big therapy session, global therapy. All right. What
1: is our communal future? <laughs> Consult the nine billion people. <laughs> so Chris, I know that you're creating a new gathering and community called Your Twenty Forty. I was wondering if you might share a little bit about that.
2: Thanks very much, Janelle. Yeah, your twenty forty is something which we started hatching about three years ago thinking about this vision, exactly what we were talking about just a minute ago. Can we actually co-design our future? Do we know what that looks like? So when where are those pictures? So if you look on, go on the web and Google the vision 2050, 20, 2040, 20, 2030, 20, you don't get a whole lot. We need to bring some folks together to accelerate the changes which we know we need to be making. 20 years at Arapah, I had the privilege of attending and speaking at many, many, many things And I think like, for example, Ted has a concept of ideas we're sharing, which is wonderful. We need to share great of ideas, lots of ideas, but we need to accelerate those ideas. We need to accelerate the action. We need to accelerate implementation. And so I met an entrepreneur, a Swiss entrepreneur at the World Web Forum about three years ago named Reto Gurtner, and he's a man of action. He's like, Chris, if you can't make it happen, it's just a dream. So we started talking about what what do we need to do? Could we bring some people together who could look at how we accelerate action towards the planetary boundary economy? And so we've committed to found a community, a gathering every year for the next 20 years up until 2040, so we can track the impact and accelerate the impact towards planetary boundary living.
0: I'm curious if you can help us paint a picture of a of walking through a planetary boundary city or a resilient city. What is that like to you? If I like close my
2: eyes. Cities have been around for a long time and they're going to still be around for a long time. And the planetary boundary city in many ways will look the same as it does today. And it will look very different. So I could imagine that the air in every city is clear that you can actually see blue sky in the summertime. And so the nitric dioxide is not, hovering above you from the emissions, that you can actually hear the birds sing outside because the windows don't have to be shut to keep the noise out from the vehicles. And nature is become an interwoven component of our cities again, because nature changes our neurochemistry, our neurology. And so there'll be more pocket parks, there'll be more nature on, in and on buildings, and so there'll be a resurgence of that interaction with humans and nature. I imagine that they'll also be more compact, um, because I do believe with the planetary boundary cities, as we move forward, say, 40, 50 years, that the density will have changed. I do believe that, that we'll be giving land back to not only nature, but giving land back to food production. What's harder for me to imagine, Sam, is how we will be building. This is very difficult for me because we're running out of, most of the parts of the world are running out of sand and gravel. And concrete is like the quite literally and figuratively the bedrock of the developed world. And so what we're going to do there, I'm not quite sure, the binders we we'll use—I'm not quite sure. So those parts of the picture are for me a little bit fuzzy, a little bit blurry. Those things I think we're going to solve, and I do believe in the planetary boundary city. We're going to recognize, and each and every citizen will know his or her or their consumption footprint. They will know all the water that they've used and all the products which they've used, and they'll be much, much, much more aware inherently of the impact of their actions. And that, I, I think, is part of the education part. And you know, well, right now that seems really heavy. Yeah, but awareness, I mean, what could be better to get more
0: people thinking this way?
2: Right. And I, but I don't think, I think in about 20, 30 years when we finally got there, it won't be heavy. It will become sort of a, a different normal. Every generation has different things that they need to learn how to do. It becomes part of, quote, their normal. A good friend of mine here was recently divorced and he was talking to these two younger women who are in the balcony in the building next to him. And he has a a partner again now. And and these two young women asked him when he was on the balcony smoking, he said, so where did you meet her? And he said, the dance floor. And they responded say, what app is that? We don't have that. (laughs) (laughs) And to me, this is the perfect example of how different things become normalized.
0: Great. I want to uh, open it up for audience questions. Looks like we have one here
2: from Scott,
0: which I will read. Scott says, isn't cities as environmentally destructive a bit of a trope? Per capita exurbs are much more destructive and emissions producing.
1: Depends on how you define city. And we all have very different definitions and city doesn't necessarily mean the dense part. There's like city and rural. In my classification, I'd probably put three, but if you accept this t- binary system, the way that I personally define the suburbs would be included in cities because they're inherently connected. You don't have suburbs in the middle of nowhere. Well, sometimes you do in the United States, but outside of that, <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> you know, they're usually connected to some larger piece. So,
0: yeah, I think that's true. And that even just like you said, that binary approach is not, is not reality.
2: I completely agree with that. I think it's important to define what me, what one means by destructive and or emissions producing right this is complex and complicated and it's easy to slip into cities are bad country is good excerpts are bad you know farms are good
1: I think another piece of it is like the way that we've over the years defined city is not again in the only the physical but it's the city as a system so it's not just physically where you live it's it's the system. What's the food system? Where does your food come from? So going back to like industrial agriculture, right? That might be considered rural, but it's supporting the city itself. And so like all of that is part of the bigger footprint.
2: Now that's a really, really important question or an important statement, which is thinking of these cities as systems, not just simply as elements, right? And the different types of cities, because they're not just the American cities, there are African cities. And you say, well, which part of Africa? Because South Africa, East Africa, West Africa. I mean, so we've got to be really, really careful and to really recognize that the multiplicity of opportunities and the multiplicity of challenges, which a city like Tokyo faces, or the city that even in Zurich, and those are two completely different scales. I can walk across Zurich in an hour. You know, I can't even walk from one neighborhood to another in Tokyo in an hour. I mean, good Lord. And at the end of the day, they all require protein. They all require carbohydrates. They all require water. They require energy. So the question then becomes: For the planetary boundary city, how do we provide these different systems for citizens and, and within the planetary boundaries? And is it possible? Because the future has to be green. You know, I'm a capitalist, but I still think the future has to be green. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like. Hmm. We have the choice. It has to be circular. It has to be collective. As Bucky said, we're on spaceship Earth. We've got no place else to go.
0: You know, just the word boundary, is, is it the urban growth boundary in Portland, Oregon? Because I do often see Portland doing adaptive reuse and doing interesting things. And certainly, if I could just talk about the food scene in Portland, because it's so connected to farms is unlike anywhere I've ever been. So can either of you explain that urban growth boundary and how that might play into this?
1: So here's how i understand it because we studied that in school as the exemplar whether it is or isn't is another debate but that's how they teach you in planning school but the way that they do it in portland is the way i understand what they had done was essentially they drew a line around the city and just said all of the development happens inside beyond that line no development And so in that context, I think it seems to have worked for Portland in the sense of preventing sprawl. Now, I think it probably has caused some other unintended consequences in terms of reducing urban sprawl and preserving land outside of the city. It seems to have done a good job with that and also creating constraints for design to operate within. So if you can only operate within this construct, you have to rethink what your transportation system looks like because... It needs to operate differently. It can't just, you know, go on forever, et cetera.
0: Yeah, and I don't want to incorrectly equate like a physical boundary to the boundaries we're talking about.
1: But it's a good start.
2: So for me, urban growth boundaries are very common in Europe and they're not common in the United States. They're perceived as a shrinking of our rights in the United States to own and manipulate the land. This is what we consider as a a right in Europe. And for example, here in Zurich, I can walk in 10 minutes to the urban growth boundary and be in a forest. So any place around Zurich, you can be into forest. And the same in Freiburg, the same in Frankfurt, same in Munich. The idea is that there's a quality of life here at stake. And then you have a right as a citizen to access nature. So it's a very different mindset as to what's important to the general good. And Portland has it. Austin, Texas, also has it. And you know, it's its, a, it's not common in the United States because we had a different attitude about the role of property. Yeah, we sort of have it
0: <laughs> literally inverted, where it's like build a city and then be like, oh no, we need green space, and then enclose the green space versus like there was green space, <laughs> we just didn't protect it or provide access to it.
1: Well, the other thing in this states and with cities in general is a city is built on the most modern transportation network at the time it was created, right? And so like in Europe, you have some towns that you can't fit cars in because they were designed when people were on foot or on horse or whatever that format was. So they were designed also in a different way. Whereas in the US, everything was, aside from you know some of the East Coast, most West Coast was built after cars. So once that network is in place, you can't change it. Theoretically in the States, we built these giant roads and we could make them smaller. But, you know, that's a whole mindset shift, saying that because that I think also impacts the growth boundary, because it was just built for different type and speed of transportation.
0: We're going to have one more quick audience question. So this comes from Alvis. So they're asking, you mentioned sort of like protecting the Amazon, you mentioned sort of microbiome, what are the other opportunities of things that we want to retain, save, design to regenerate?
2: Janelle, you've been doing a bit of research on this.
1: Water, 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 water. (laughs) Humans inhabit land. We do not inhabit water. When we think of climate and carbon, we think of what are the land based systems to prevent it and use the land-based systems to find solutions. So planting trees, regenerative farming, think of the soil, et cetera. Well, the ocean is 70 plus percent of Earth's surface and also has just as much carbon being absorbed in climate change. And I don't know the answers, but I think there's a lot of solutions or opportunity areas to think about for that.
2: I would, yes, yes, and to me, the opportunities lie in our consumption behavior being very aware that we vote with our purchase choices and so that we make sure that we're aware of the um, origin of where we're buying things from, trying to use things as long as possible, thinking of the circular economy. at a highest, highest utilization and trying to live into that. So um, thinking about, can you use that T-shirt another year? Right? Do you really have to go get a new one, or how about resoling the shoes? Through those decisions we make every day, those little decisions you, that adds up to a massive change. And this is what Paul Hawken with Project Drawdown was talking about. Everyone can do a little bit, and all those little bits add up to a hell of a lot.
1: Change happens in our everyday decisions.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, audience, for your
0: great questions. Chris, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it so much.
2: It's a pleasure, Sam. Thank you very much for the invitation to join you and Janelle.
0: Absolutely. Listeners, check out Chris's work. Visit ethz.ch and we'll post links to that and other resources we mentioned in the show in our show notes. Okay, we're going to take our last break and we'll return for the weekly dose of Good Design. Okay, it's my favorite time of the week. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. This week I'm thinking about my garden and just vegetable gardening in general. And as we're recording this, I'm starting to see the tomatoes come and the peppers and the zucchini forming. And it's just the best. My garden is 10 feet by 30 feet in my backyard. and it's like our family project. So I have like a basically like a four foot fence around the whole thing. So like starting March and April, it's like basically a dirt playpen for my kids. So I just like throw them in there. They're like digging. They help me till the soil literally because they're just like digging holes. And then I'm digging a hole right next to them and we're tilling the soil together. Uh, they also help me set up like the hoses for like the irrigation. And then you know, it comes to the end of May and it's now, I think this is our fourth year in this house and doing this garden. It's like Planting day has become like a family like day, like a holiday where like we all participate and then we get everything in the ground, seeds, plants, and then we celebrate together as a family. My kids are great at weeding. And it's just fun to hear them talk. Like, well, my four-year-old, not my one-year-old, can't talk yet. But my four-year-old is already talking about like when's the first harvest? When are we going to pick the tomatoes, the basil? So we really get into it. And it's just this great thing to do. So if you have a garden, you know what I'm talking about. If you're thinking about a garden go for it i've learned a lot i learned something every year (laughs) that like from my failures and from my successes so um and yeah like i said we're just looking forward to that first harvest so that's mine janelle i'll kick it over to you
1: i'm gonna pick something small but on my note of daily decision making is my cell phone case because it is compostable and it reminds me really at random points in time because it's usually near me somewhere that I just look down and I was like, oh, yes, this thing is compostable. We have the ability to do if you can do this with a cell phone case, you can find ways to use natural products and in lots of the other things we do. So it's my little reminder every day. that.
0: Do you have a brand? Like, do you have a specific one that you can tell people about?
1: Uh, this one is Pella. P-E-L-A. There's a few other ones, but I like this one.
2: That's very cool. I like both of those. And uh, I have right here in front of me a double walled glass espresso cup. And I have more different sizes, but this is very important for me. I can't start the day without it. And it's just a gorgeous design. It's done by Blomus, B L O M U S. Very clever, very simple, very practical. And you can use it for hot or cold items. So that's my little bit for today.
0: Awesome, thank you both. Those were so good. That's our show. Thank you again to Janelle Simunich and Dr. Chris Lubkamen for joining us. What an awesome conversation. I learned a lot, so that's always a good sign. <laughs> to find links to the resources we discuss in our episode, visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. Thank you to our live audience for your great questions and listening in. If you'd like to listen to the show again, it will air on August 12th. Uh, You can find our podcast, Design Is Everywhere, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, leave a review, share it with someone you think would learn about the transformative power of design. And we have those new episodes come every Thursday. As always, you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at designmuseumeverywhere. Plus we're on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. This episode was written, edited, and produced by the amazing Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom, editing support by Emily Roberts, and additional research and writing by Tanya Chabla. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for listening, and we'll talk again next week.